Turn to Philippians chapter 4. This is our, our, last, our last Sunday in, uh, in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're completing the series, and um, as, as Paul uh, closes this book, really there's, there's sort of a celebration uh, that's going on in the prison cell uh, as he finishes up this book and uh, sort of licks the envelope and gives the letter to Epaphroditus to take back to, to Philippi. And so I want to talk about what it means to enjoy abundance in whatever situation that you are in. And I want to, I want to t- tell you two stories. Story number one took place in Old East Dallas, and Cindy and I were living there for a number of years, and there was a couple that we got to know, lived, lived across the street, who was not doing well in their careers, not doing well. And we would periodically go across the street and talk to them, and, and they just were not making it in their careers. And one day, uh, they came home, uh, and we saw them lugging in big bags of groceries into their house. We went over to ask him what was going on. And, you know, hey, look, look, wow, this is pretty good. And he said, I got a new job. I'm a ladder salesman uh, working for a ladder company. And uh, my first paycheck came in. So uh, we went and we bought a bunch of groceries that we haven't had for a long time. And that night, this couple was enjoying abundance. They were enjoying abundance. And it was really fun to kind of see what they were were doing. Now, I want you to think about a completely different couple. I want you to imagine a couple that in their 20s started a small construction firm in Philadelphia. Uh, Over the course of about five to 10 years, they are struggling to make this construction company work. By year 20, they think, okay, this is going pretty well. But you're 25. They think, you know what? We're tired. We want to get out of this. They go to an accountant to evaluate the, pr- the cost of the company, and they realize the company is worth $9.5 million. So this couple says, we're going to sell. They sell, and they move down to Naples, Florida, and the first thing that they do is they buy a big boat. Now, I want you to think about these two couples. Both these couples could not be any more different from each other. One working class in East Dallas, one retired and wealthy in Naples, Florida. They could not be any more different from each other. And yet, both these couples are enjoying abundance. They're enjoying abundance. They're relishing the fact that they have more than they anticipated they would have. And I choose those two stories to demonstrate a point. Experiencing abundance is never about what you might have or what you don't have. It's not about that. Experiencing abundance is the attitude you have toward what you currently have. Couple number one defined abundance as big bags of groceries after rice and beans. Couple number two defined abundance as a new Boston Whaler 370 with twin Mercury outboard engines. Both encountered abundance, but it was their attitude toward what they have. Now, I will tell you, it is impossible for for we human beings to assign a number to abundance. There's like no, like no set monetary level. Like if I just have this much, you know, I will enjoy abundance. If I just have this many kids or this many grandkids, I'll enjoy abundance. 
I've known people who are relatively wealthy and they groused over what they did not have. They groused over it because they were comparing themselves to people who had more. I've talked to other people, especially in Cuba, <laughs> in Cuba, people who were so poor from our perspective, dire poverty, and yet they exuded a sense of joy and an abundance of mentality. So how do you get to the place where you enjoy abundance? How do you do that? Well, Paul, Paul models this in a wonderful way in these last verses in Philippians while he's in jail. And so I want to do two things this morning. First, I want to complete the story of, of Paul's prison experience in Rome. And then I want to show you three ways that we can enjoy really genuine abundance. So let's, let's talk about Paul's, Paul's prison story. Um, <clears throat> you'll remember that when Paul was uh, on his missionary journey, second missionary journey, they, they tried to go north. Uh, Holy Spirit said, no, we can't do it. They tried to go southwest. Holy Spirit said, no, can't do it. So they end up going to Troas. And when they get to Troas, Paul has a vision. And a man from Macedonia appears to him in the vision and says, come over here. We need you over here. This is a new continent, a new country. Uh, Macedonia is about the size of Oklahoma. The man from Macedonia in the dream didn't tell him where to go. Uh, so they go to the leading city, which was the city of Philippi. And nothing about what happens next makes any sense. They, the first person they lead to Christ is a woman. Well, it was a man who appeared to him in the dream, and yet a woman comes to Christ. That didn't seem to make sense. God says, you know, the man says, come to Macedonia. Well, they get to Philippi, and they get thrown in jail. That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. But then, then things start happening. Jailer comes to Christ. More and more people come to Christ. And pretty soon there's this great church, which is... Which is multiracial, multilingual, different regions are represented, and the church is now a thriving church. Well, uh, over the course of time, that's Philippi, the church in Philippi grows, and then, and then 12 years goes by. And during that time, Paul travels all over the Mediterranean, but he ends up in jail in Rome. And uh, it's not a terrible jail. I mean, it's his own rented quarters. Um, and he does have the opportunity to have people into his jail cell to be able to talk to them. Um, but it's jail. And during this time in jail, he makes fantastic use of his time. For instance, he, he meets and mentors a young runaway slave named Onesimus. And he writes four New Testament books, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. We call these the prison epistles because they're written from his prison cell in Rome. He leads a number of Roman soldiers to Christ. So Paul is, is making great use of his time. Well, meanwhile, back in Philippi, the people in Philippi hear that he's in jail and they, they want to provide help. So Philippi is there on the map. It's, it's, it's there on the coast of, uh, of the beautiful section where all the Greek isles are. And Rome is, is way far away. And so who's going to be tasked with helping Paul in Rome? Well, Epaphroditus is the guy who is, who is the volunteer. 
it is not an easy trip. It is a 1,500-mile journey one way. And depending upon the route you take, whether it's over land or by sea, most likely they went by sea, it's a long and arduous journey. So Epaphroditus volunteers, I'll do this. I'll take time off of my job. He heads to the coast, finds a ship, and books a passage. And once he arrives, he's got to scour the city to find Paul. That's not easy to find where this prisoner was in the ancient city of Rome. Once he finds the, the spot, he ascends the steps to the prison, knocks on the door. Paul opens up, and they have this incredible reunion. He has not seen Epaphroditus in 12 years. They have this incredible reunion. No sooner does, he arrive, does Epaphroditus arrive than he becomes desperately ill, like we're talking ill to the point of death. We're talking like he's about ready to take his last breath. He is desperately ill, almost dies. Uh, and I'm assuming that Paul nurses him back to health through good nursing care and prayer. I'm assuming that some of the Roman soldiers who've come to Christ are helping their brother Epaphroditus, who is, who is sick, and Epaphroditus gets better. And the night before Epaphroditus returns to Philippi, I can imagine Paul sitting down and dictating the book of Philippians to somebody who would write out this, this book. And when Paul gets to chapter 4, verse 10, he says something amazing. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now think about where he is saying this. He's in jail. And he's, his emotions are rising up. And he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Paul is in the midst of encountering abundance. Again, I mean, he's not saying it's pretty bad in jail, guys. Food is terrible. Conditions are terrible. I got rats around me. I got spiders that crawl up the jail cell. The sanitation conditions are horrible. We hear none of that. What we hear is an abundance mindset, even though Paul is in jail. All right, how do you get the abundance mindset? Well, uh, I'll argue, first of all, that to enjoy abundance, you must cultivate contentment. You must cultivate contentment. Here's what he says. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If I could sum up these verses, uh, one thing just jumps out at me big time. Contentment is not a feeling that comes upon you, a feeling that's like, wow, I now feel content. It's not a feeling that God miraculously shoots down from heaven your way. He could do that. Sometimes he does do that. But that's not primarily what contentment, what contentment is. God has established contentment as a character quality that you must develop. Character qualities 
by nature are things that you must develop because they're part of your character. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't, you don't develop these apart from the Holy Spirit. You, you develop these according to the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit wants you to be about the task of developing the character quality of contentment. Okay, remember, grace is never opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning merit. It's not opposed to effort. And it's God's will that this character quality of contentment be something that we, we work at doing. So how does contentment typically come? It comes through gratitude. Go back to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Imagine the knock on the door. Paul opens the door. There's his old friend. Hasn't seen him in about a dozen years. Paphroditus, how are you doing? How's your family doing? How was your trip? Do you need anything? Paul is acting like the host in, in prison. And Epaphroditus says, Paul, we're doing great. In fact, I, I, I have something for you. And he opens up his cloak, and there sewn in the pocket of his cloak is a big wad of cash, although in the ancient world it's going to be a, a sack of money. Now think about this. You know, th we, we haven't invented the banking system quite yet, right? So if you wanted to, to take a cash donation to somebody, it had to be in cash, and you carried it in your, in your cloak, and you put cloth in that bag and tightly cinched it so that people, that, as you're walking down the street, don't hear this big wad of cash in your cloak. So Epaphroditus opens this up, and Paul is overjoyed by what he sees because it's going to sustain his ministry there in jail. I would suspect, based upon the wording, that there were other things in there like maybe pen and paper, parchment paper, maybe a warm coat, maybe practical things that he needs. And Paul says, I rejoice greatly. Paul's experiencing gratitude. Now, I'm sure I say this a lot, but gratitude is not your natural bent as a fallen human being. Gratitude has to be cultivated. You have to train your mind in that direction. Psychologists tell us that our brains are plastic in the sense that they can be adjusted and the neural pathways can be altered. And the brain plasticity reality of our, our, our neurobiology means that if we choose gratitude, we will create neural pathways in our brains that sustain that gratitude. That's why moms and dads can do a great thing with their kids if they train them from an early age to exhibit gratitude. Not only is that a spiritual thing, but in the brain, neural pathways are being formed that empower that child to grow up and be a person of gratitude for the rest of their life. Gratitude is a cultivated character quality. And God, God commands us. I mean, think about what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. So you encounter a bad situation. What's God's will in that situation? No matter how bad it is, 
in everything complain, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything be cynical, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. No, 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 it's not what it says. In everything give thanks, because this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. God's will is that you would live in an atmosphere of consistent gratitude. So how do you, how do you build this? Well, it's through practice. Notice uh, verse, um, verse t- uh, 10. I have learned. Notice verse 12. I know. Notice the next sentence. I have learned. Did this come naturally to Paul? No, it did not. Does it come naturally to you? No, it does not. If you want to become a person of gratitude, it takes the discipline of developing this in no matter what circumstance you're in. So um, when Cindy and I were married for about 10 years, we moved to Baltimore. And our move to Baltimore was, was a really great move, with one exception. We moved from a larger house in Dallas to a smaller house in Baltimore. And I had a serious emotional struggle with downsizing. It was really difficult for me to downsize. Now, I had been listening to a memorial service where a pastor had done the memorial service for his wife. It was an African-American pastor. It was in the L.A. area. And as this pastor was giving the memorial service for his wife, he repeated the phrase, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know that comes from the book of Job. He, he repeated that about 20 times in this message. And I listened to that message about 20 times. And when I got to, to Baltimore and I was, anytime the emotion of frustration came up that we had downsized, I just kept saying to the Lord, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And what I realized over the course of our time in Baltimore was that that house was the most amazing blessing because of its proximity to um, the local neighborhood pool, because of the relationships we cultivated. That was an incredible blessing. But I needed that discipline of gratitude on move-in day because I was emotionally tanked because we were downsizing from a larger home to a smaller home. Gratitude is something that has to be developed. Discipline is something that has to be, has to be developed. And it's a gratitude that flows out of the fullness of who you are in Christ. Notice the statement he says in verse 12, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I've talked to people who've said, I can't be grateful, I won't be grateful, not after what happened to me. And when Paul says in verse 12, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he, uh, he is saying, I can be grateful in spite of the circumstances that I happen to be in. Paul isn't stopping there. I think what Paul is saying is, if I can be grateful in jail, I can be grateful in any area of life. And if things are bad, it's not that I'm grateful for what's bad, I'm grateful for the presence and the power of God manifested even in the bad situation. Now, abundance mindset comes first with contentment. To enjoy abundance, secondly, we learn the art of celebration, and we, we, we rejoice in the victories of others. Um, 
And not just in their victories, but we rejoice in their victories as if they were ours. This is a very, very rare trait. Look what he says. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs uh, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Let me just stop there for a second and say that some commentators have looked at this and they, they said, that's a weird thank you note. I mean, Paul, why don't you just say thank you? Well, there's an historical reason. Um, the art of giving thanks in the ancient world was culturally very carefully prescribed. And most people didn't just go, thank you. Thank you for what you did. No, you, you, you said it differently back in the ancient world, and Paul is using the common way of saying thanks. So he's not being ungrateful to them. He's using the common first century way of saying thanks. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant aroma, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. <clears throat> what Paul is saying in that part that I underlined there on the screens is that he is celebrating a particular victory for the Philippians. Now, let me just say that celebrating victories of others is a mark of character that we even find in the Trinity. And in other words, even the members of the Trinity rejoice in the victories of the other members of the Trinity. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. God the Father, represented by the Ancient of Days, presents a kingdom to his Son. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. God the Father is rejoicing in the presentation of the kingdom to his Son. What I'm saying, it's a mark of character, even in the Trinity, to rejoice in the victories of others. We see an example of this in Philippians 2, 9, and 11. God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name. What, what name is that? It's, it's Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah Lord. Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and underneath the earth. God the Father, again, is rejoicing in the victory of his Son. It is a mark of character for you to rejoice in the victories of others. So when Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, he's talking about their victory. What's their victory? What, what victory is that going to be? Well, it's the victory that's going to happen at an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ. Here's a picture of the Judgment Seat in Corinth called the Bema, the Bema Seat. That's the Greek word for the Judgment Seat. That Judgment Seat was the place from which the magistrates of the city would preside over trials or they would preside over the handing out of rewards. This Bema if you go to Corinth, you can, see, you, can, you can see the name of this Bema. Jesus, Paul, Paul is, is using this to refer to, to an event that will happen after your death called the judgment seat of Christ. 
in which God will reward you for things that you have done in this life. From the time of salvation to the time of heaven, you will have done a number of good things. And Jesus will, you'll stand before Jesus and he will provide reward for you for those good things that you've done. You know, Jesus talked about that extensively in the Gospels, about rewards. Talks about, you know, if you uh, fast in public and act as if you're all hungry and feeling bad, you know, you got your reward in full. You know, so Jesus talks about rewards extensively. But the reward in heaven is not a reward based upon how flamboyantly amazing you were in this world. It was how you lived your life toward God. So, did you store up treasures in heaven through the giving of your gifts? You'll receive a reward. Did you hunger for Jesus' power and presence in your life? You'll receive a reward. Did you lead people uh, in the body of Christ well as a leader, as a disciple maker? You'll receive a reward. Did you do your job primarily as unto the Lord in your career? You'll receive a reward. The Philippians are going to receive a reward for sacrificially giving to the ministry of Paul. Paul is celebrating their future victory as if it was was his own. Now, this is a tremendous mark of love. If you have the ability to see a friend score a victory and not be jealous and not be envious, but to rejoice with that person, that is a tremendous mark of love that is very rare. Let me, let me define love for you. This is about as simple a definition as I can give you. Love is the will to bring good to others. And the discipline of being a loving person is the disposition to consistently bring the best good to the object of your affection. Love is primarily not a feeling, although feelings of love are awesome. (laughs) They're great. God built us with the capacity for feeling feelings of love. They're great. But true love is the will to bring good to other people. So to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength means that you will to bring glory to the enthroned God in heaven. To love people is very similar. You will their best good and you act on their behalf. Last month, I had a, had a friend call me that I had known from my college days, and this friend exuded tremendous love. I'd, I'd talked to him probably in five years, and we were, we were great friends in, in college. He was best man at my wedding. Got on the phone, and for the, we talked for about an hour, and for the first half hour, all he did was ask me questions. How's your family doing? How's Cindy doing? How are the kids doing? Tell me about your grandkids. I can talk for a long time about my grandkids. He kept asking, how's how's the church going? You know, where are you traveling these days? Question after question after question. After half an hour, you 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 know what I felt? Loved by my friend. He willed 
my good by listening to my answers and celebrating my victories. I'm telling you, that is a very rare character quality. Because what people mostly do is hear somebody else's victory and think, I haven't done that. And we hang our head like, what's wrong with me? Or we think, I did something better than he did. <laughs> I'm, they think that's cool. Wait till I tell my story. I got a better story to tell. That's what most of us do. That's our, our default is to compare ourselves to other people. Paul is celebrating their, their, their victory. Um, you know that you are encountering abundance when you, when you, can, when you can do this. Um, and I, I, want you to, I want you to feel what it feels like to do it for a second. Imagine you have a child who grows up, goes to college, gets a job in the software industry, goes to Silicon Valley, invents an app, sells the app for $10 million, and you're his mom or dad. How do you feel? Well, um, most parents think, wow, that's fabulous. Or imagine you have a child. You're, you grew up as an athlete. You have a child as an athlete. Your child goes to college on a scholarship, gets out of college, and is recruited to play in the NBA. Your child's a better athlete than you are. How do you feel about your child? Fabulous. You're not competing against your child. You're not jealous for your child. You're grateful that something great has happened to your child. That's the heart of celebrating the victories of others. We're celebrating their victories because this is a brother in Christ. This is a sister in Christ. And potentially their victory brings glory to God. By you celebrating their victory, you're bringing glory to God as well. Now let's look at the, the next way to enjoy abundance. It's expecting God's surprise solution. God often engineers unexpected answers. You know, Lucy is up there in the cartoon and she does not have a happy look here. And, and this idea of expecting God's surprise solution is to expect it with joy, to expect it with a, maybe um, a joyful heart, an abundance mindset, because God loves, he loves to engineer surprise solutions. Paul demonstrates this in the final section, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God be the glory forever and ever. That's a statement about God's ability to provide a surprise solution. I, I think the financial contribution of the Apostle Paul may have rendered the givers very impoverished. Paul hints at this in a number of places. These guys gave sacrificially, and now they're sort of in poverty. And Paul is saying, surprise solution. I'm praying that God would supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now Paul illustrates this with his own personal situation. Paul says in verse 21, greet every saint 
in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you, especially those members of Caesar's household. And I think to myself, wait, what? (laughs) Who are the members of Caesar's household who are with him in the jail cell? Well, they are the people that Paul led to Christ. And you remember what I said as we we began this, this series. Paul's in his own rented quarters. Roman soldiers are brought into his jail cell, maybe even chained to Paul. And if the soldier is chained to Paul, guess what Paul is going to say to the soldier? How's your family? Tell me about your growing up years. So have you, have you heard about why I'm here? I'm here because of Christ. Can, can I tell you about Christ? And one by one, Paul is leading Roman soldiers to Christ. And pretty soon the buzz is going around the barracks that it's a pretty sweet deal to get assigned to the Apostle Paul. And more and more soldiers are coming to Christ, and as they come to Christ, they're being sent out to the far corners of the Roman world. So Paul, by being in jail, is able to reach way more people than if he were out and about sharing the gospel with people. God empowered Paul to multiply his ministry by sending him to jail. Now, this was was a really surprise solution to the Apostle Paul. You have to remember, at this point, Emperor Nero is going crazy. He's about at his psychological breaking point. And so for God to engineer this surprise solution actually protects the Apostle Paul as he's traveling in the Roman Empire and allows him to multiply his work all over the place. And so, you know how I give you mnemonic devices, like I've, I've used the word ETC. I use that to say, embrace the chaos. I use that to say, every thought captive. I use that a lot in my life. I'm going to give you another one. And, and, and the next one is, um, oops, ATSS, anticipate the surprise solution, ATSS. I I often say that, okay, my day falls apart. I say to the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm anticipating your surprise solution. What is your surprise solution here? Sometimes it comes sooner, sometimes it comes later. But I'm always anticipating what God's surprise solution would be. See, when Paul goes to Rome, he has no idea what kind of jail cell he's going to have, what kind of conditions he's going to have, what's going to happen up there. It's jail, and he's not excited about jail like you wouldn't be. But God engineers a surprise solution, and people who encounter abundance are always looking for God's surprise solution. So this this passage is all about experiencing abundance on a daily basis, and we do it in three ways. We cultivate contentment through the discipline of gratitude, we celebrate the victories of others as if they were ours and we anticipate the surprise solution. So as we close, what I want you to do is just close your eyes, and we're going to turn the lights down low here for a moment, and I want you to just tell God the surprise solution that you need today or this week. It could be you need a surprise solution for a health matter. You need a surprise solution for a financial matter. You need a surprise solution for a relational matter. You need a surprise solution for a thorny career decision that you have to make. 
Where do you need God's surprise solution? I just want you to briefly just say, Lord, here's my dilemma, and I want to anticipate what your surprise solution might be. You express that to the Lord, and then um, I will we'll transition to communion. Father in heaven, um, I want to thank you that in a room like this, there are many different needs that you can handle, many dilemmas for which you have answers. And Father, there, there may be someone here who, who has a, a deep dilemma today that has, has them discouraged, that has them frustrated, that has them wondering about your goodness, that has them wondering if you're, if you're present. And Father, I pray that they would have the courage to, uh, to shift their mind into a place where they would <coughs> anticipate your surprise solution. And Lord, I pray that you would give them uh, an unexpected resolution to this issue and that their story would be an encouragement to us here in the body of Christ and that their story would be something that encourages them to continue the discipline of anticipating the, the surprise solution. Lord, I, I know how you have used that discipline in the lives of the handful of people that I know to change the way they approach life. ATSS, always anticipating your surprise solution. Now, Lord, as we, as we move toward the communion table, we thank you that you are the generous, generous God who gave us your son. What a gift he is. Lord Jesus, what a gift you are. Jesus, you are a gift to us in so many ways. We thank you for the gift of eternal life that has begun now for those of us who have received you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can celebrate that in, in the Lord's Supper. Amen.